Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, I am so excited to have the one and only plant-powered gastroenterologist who is now a two-time, two-time New York Times best-selling author with his latest bestseller titled The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook. The one and only Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Will, how did I do in your last name? We'll go with Dr. B for the rest of the mentions in the show, but how did I do? Yeah, well, the beautiful thing about it is that if that was like you doing the vault in the Olympics and millions of people are watching, you just stuck it. So we're going st- to take that, lock it in, and we're just going to move on. <laughs> we don't have millions. We get a couple hundred thousand every once in a while. So, you know, we'll take it. I'm glad I nailed it. Whether it's one or, or a million, I'm glad I nailed it. Because I've got a last name too, Wakab, which most people, you know, don't get right. So got to put forth the effort. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a little bit of an Eastern European thing. And the, and the names there were not designed to be read like English words. That's part of the problem. <laughs> I'm going to start in a different place today. You know, we're, we're, we're moving. I've been in New York for almost 20 years. Love New York, but we're moving to Miami next week. And so, you know, Colleen and I have like our little bucket list of what are the things, you know, we want to check off the box before we go. There aren't many. However, you know, on our walk to our girls' preschool in Brooklyn Heights, this little like French bakery just opened Mm. and there's like a line and and, like the part of Brooklyn Heights, it's on Montague street and the bakery is called, I think like La Apartment 4F, I'm butchering the French pronunciation. There's like a line out the door Mm. and like in Brooklyn Heights is like, it's like a running joke. It's kind of like a food desert. Like there's no good restaurants. There's no good anything. There's like a line out the door. It's like, there's like life in Brooklyn Heights. <laughs> and so I'm like, Colleen and I, I'm like, we got to go to this thing before we go. Yeah. And so she went and the land wasn't bad. And she brought back all these French pastries, like raspberry croissants, chocolate chip cookies, almond croissant. And I'm not like a big croissant person, but I just like completely devoured like two of them. I was like, wow, this is really good. And then I'm thinking like, okay, this is amazing on the bucket list. Really enjoyed it, savored it, really special. Glad glad we did this before we left. And so I'm thinking, all right, so, you know, this happens to people, you know, what's going on with the microbiome when I indulge in such a a pleasurable carb sugar laden meal, such as the one I just had. Well, I mean, first of all, there's a reason why croissants (laughs) continue to be some of the most popular foods on the planet. So, I mean, particularly when they're coming from a wonderful French, um, bakery like this. So, you know, let me, let's start off by saying this, no one meal, no matter what you do, no one meal is going to make or break your digestive health at the end of the day, right? Well, ultimately what is the determinant of your digestive health and wellness is going to be the overall dietary pattern. And therefore what you really want is you want to have sustainable simple common sense choices that you can basically like bring into your life, make them your habit. And then that way, like when you have elevated your, you know, dietary pattern, elevated your digestive health, you have your croissant day. And it's like, <laughs> look, the rock, we all follow the rock. I'm pretty sure most of us follow the rock because the guy's got like over 350 million followers and there's only 350 million people in the U S so, and you know, he has his cheat days. Right. So it's okay to have your cheat day. It's not a big deal. I actually, the other day, Jason, I got stopped in the supermarket and this woman says to me, she goes, you're that guy. Yes. (laughs) I'm that guy. And she's like, 
you know, she's like, I love what you do, but I don't, I can't eat the way that you do. And I'm like, really, what do you mean? She goes, I like ice cream. I'm like, I like ice cream too. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> so I think that the bottom line though, is that again, like progress over perfection, you're allowed to have indulgences. You're allowed to have the croissants. The problem is if you were to make that croissant literally your breakfast on a daily basis, I feel like you could do better, but you could also do worse. <laughs> 100% agreed. And I want to start there for two reasons. One, I just wanted to share the joy of a, a wonderful croissant. I think, you know, indulging every once in a while, as you mentioned, is definitely one of the joys in life. And, you know, where I'm going with is fiber. And so, oh. you know, the book is about fiber and, you know, indulgence should be part of your life and it should be not a daily thing. It should maybe be a once a week thing or a twice a week thing or about celebrations, but not an everyday thing. Fiber should be an everyday thing. And I think the problem we're seeing, because the whole book is about fiber and we have a lot of problems about fiber, which we're going to dive into is most people don't treat fiber as a lifestyle. I think they're treating it like I'm treating the croissant. Yeah. <laughs> and an, an occasional thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, the, the statistics crew would, you know, bore that out, which is that if we look, 95% of Americans are fiber deficient right now, and they're not mildly fiber deficient. They are wildly fiber deficient. The rec the average amount that a woman is consuming in the U.S. is about 15 and a half grams of fiber per day. The recommended amount is 25 grams. For men, we're doing about 18 grams of fiber per day. That makes us sound like we're doing so much better. We are not. Actually, we're doing worse. The recommended amount for men is 38 grams of fiber per day. So we are not where we need to be. And we have not only this deficiency, but we have the, this data, this research that is emerging that is really quite clearly painting a picture of dietary fiber for health. You know, part of my platform is describing exactly why that is. And, you know, sort of taking the stories beyond the orange drink that your grandma was drinking and moving it into this exciting new scientific discovery that's taking place in the microbiome space. Like that's, you know, this is me connecting the dots for people so that it's not just this black box. But if we just look at the black box for a moment and we zoom out, what happens when people consume more dietary fiber? The research says that they reduce their likelihood of having a heart attack, reduce their likelihood of dying of heart disease, reduce their likelihood of three types of cancers, colon, breast, and esophageal. They're less likely to die of cancer. They're less likely to have a stroke, less likely to have diabetes. By the way, that was one study that was a systematic review and meta-analysis that included over 130 million person years of data. But then we have powerful data for Alzheimer's disease. We have powerful data for chronic kidney disease. So we have six of the top 10 causes of death that could be potentially like we could reduce our exposure to these high-risk diseases that are threatening human lives by, cons by like quite simply consuming a salad. And why is the news not picking this up and running with it and shouting this from the rooftops? Because this to me is our greatest dietary deficiency. <laughs> I, I get super frustrated with the news, with government, you know, with some of the larger medical organizations as we have this conversation, you know, as you mentioned, it's no secret. There are certain things every year that are the top killers in the United States talk about cancer, heart disease, diabetes, like they're there every year. And when you mentioned a study like you just did, a bulletproof study, if you will, that points to fiber. And we're not talking about fiber. We're talking about all these other, I don't even know what we're talking about <laughs> in terms of what's being like the CDC. The, I don't even want to go there on the show. I think our audience gets it. But 
we've got an educated audience. We've, we've got an audience of people who are evangelists, who are smart, who, who, you know, want to make the right decisions and preach, preach the gospel of, of, of the good word of fiber, if you will. So I'm curious about diversity of fiber mm -hmm. in terms of sources and, and quantity. So if I'm listening, I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm having a salad. I'm, you know, but, but what is enough and how should I be thinking about the sources is one thing we've read about the mic, read and heard about the microbiome is microbiome loves diversity. So let's talk about diversity of fiber and quantity. Yeah, totally. Well, so, you know, honestly, Jason, before we even jump into this, I want to turn towards the mind, body, green audience and just say to y'all that as we move into these conversations, like there are many versions of a healthful diet. I myself actually get frustrated when people make it seem like there's only one way to be healthy. I don't actually believe that to be true. There are many versions of a healthful diet and there's also different motivations that people have. And my ask is not that people eat the way that I eat. I can assure you that I am going to eat in a way that brings me great joy, but also like I have, am my healthiest self in my forties and I'm thriving. And what I want for everyone else who's here listening is the same for them. I want you to love what you eat. I want you to be thriving. I want you to be your healthiest self and I want to help you get there. And it's not necessarily eating the way that I eat. So how do we approach this though? It's about sort of the rules of engagement. This is not an absolute thing. This is about acknowledging this, you know, context where 95% of Americans are wildly deficient in fiber. Well, the food system is not going to do this for us. The food system is not going to make it easy. Because if you look at the calories in our supermarket and where they come from in terms of coming from plants, and of course, fiber comes from plants. This is where you'll find fiber. All plants have fiber. If you look at the calories coming from plants, 75% of the calories are sourced from three plants, soy, wheat, and corn. I'm disturbed by that. We need variety in our diet. Why do we need variety? Because this is not just grams of fiber. Every single plant has unique types of fiber. Fiber is like a word like protein. The protein in a bean is not the same as the protein in a fish. So there are many forms of fiber. Each plant has its own unique forms of fiber, but the plants also have their own unique blend of, for example, polyphenols that are prebiotic, resistant starches that are prebiotic, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals that were just touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding, yet we find time and again that these phytochemicals are anti-inflammatory and good for humans. So the, the, the picture is coming together that every plant has its own unique properties to feed and fuel not only our gut microbiome, but also to enhance human health through nutrition. And if we only ate kale all day long, we would be very sick humans. We need the variety because kale has its weaknesses. And when you have that variety, you are not only building a diet that is abundant and it is varied and it has all these different phyto phytochemicals and polyphenols and vitamins and minerals. But then when we zoom in on the microbiome, what you discover is that each individual plant is feeding different families of microbes. And we want a variety of microbes, variety within an ecosystem, including the gut ecosystem is a measure of health. It's a measure of resilience. So variety within our diet, variety in our plate translates into variety within our gut microbiome. And that ends up becoming a win. So 
part of the issue here is that our system is trying to make this not happen. And the way that we buck the system is to become motivated and empowered individuals who step into a supermarket and say, you know, I'm not going to have it just be wheat, corn, and soy. We're going to get the variety. We're going to get it in the kitchen. We're going to get the variety on the plate when we sit down to dinner. That's what we're about. Amen. When are you going to run for governor? Oh man, politics <laughs> is brutal. I don't want anything to do with that. I get stabbed in the neck enough in the tr nutrition space. I don't need to be stabbed in the neck, you know, as a politician. The nutrition space may be just as difficult as the, the political arena in terms of. It kind of feels that way sometimes. It's like, it used to be, don't talk about politics and religion, but now it's like, don't talk about politics, religion, or their nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of diversity. You know, understood we're all unique individuals and there's no one size fits all approach, but right. you know, for, for someone looking to achieve like a somewhat optimal mix, if you will, yeah. how should we be thinking about diversity of fiber sources in our everyday lifestyle? Like if you're going if the average person, if you're going shopping, like what should be on your list, you know, if yeah. you will. So first of all, recognizing that, you know, many times people when I talk about eating plants or plant-based, they think, oh, that's, that's vegetables. Well, yeah, but also fruit and seeds and nuts and legumes and mushrooms technically are not plants. They're actually fungi, but they have fiber. So I include mushrooms as honorary plants. We're going to include them in there. So when I think of like the, um, foundation of a plant centered diet, you know, a plant predominant diet. It's not vegetables. It's actually whole grains and legumes. That's what you'll see in the five blue zones. They're all eating some different variety of bean. It's just like, is it a Mediterranean bean? Is it a black bean in Costa Rica? Is it edamame in Japan? Right? So when I think about variety and how we construct this, I go back to the American gut project, which is the sort of origin of this concept of dietary diversity translates into a healthier gut microbiome. And in the American Gut Project, what they specifically discovered is that the people who were consuming more than 30 varieties of plants per week had the healthiest gut microbiome. Wow. Now, this was more than, uh, so this was actually like more powerful than how you describe your own diet. Like you could label yourself as being vegan. But like if you're a junk food vegan, or if you're not eating a variety of foods, even though all your foods come from plants, it's not actually accomplishing the goal. So what this does is it opens up the door because what I love about this, this is a very actually inclusive concept. There's only one population of people that this does not apply to. <laughs> and those are the carnivores and they're going to do what they're going to do. And maybe someday they will listen to me and come back on board. But until then. We add a variety of different plants and you just, to me, the secret here, Jason, is don't get intimidated by the number 30, but instead just use every single meal, use every single time you're in the kitchen, use every time you go to the supermarket as an opportunity to emphasize dietary diversity. And if you make that a core philosophy, like you, it's on your mind when you're in these places, then it happens. And next thing you know, you're not even counting and you're doing 40 or 50 different plants in a week. And then you asked me earlier about grams of fiber. I have literally never counted grams of fiber in my own life, not even once, but I count plants 
And if I get varieties of plants in my diet, and then I am just naturally crowding out my diet with more plants and you're going to get your fiber. So when you mention varieties, you know, when I hear the, the 30, one, I think that's very impressive. And two, what came to mind for me was the analogy with strength training where, you know, everything works, but not for long. You know, for example, you do the same, you know, call it barbell exercises for a couple of weeks or a month or so, and they work and then they're not as effective and you need to try something else. And right. so when I hear the 30, I'm thinking, is that because there's so much diversity there that you're, it's like a lot for your microbiome to react to. And when you talk about, you talk about carnivore or someone has a more limited diet. Are they putting their microbiome in a position where the microbiome adjusts so quickly they get, and it's not getting the diversity? If you're only eating, call it five things, the five same things a week, whether it's, you know, you're eating five different cuts of meat or you're eating five different types of vegetables and that's it. We'll talk about like the power of diversity and the power of always switching it up. Like you got to stay one step ahead of your microbiome. Is there any truth to the strength? training analogy, which I just walked through. A hundred percent. There is truth to the strength training analogy. And the reason why is because quite simply, this is, um, just a very understandable description of the way that our entire body works. We are wildly adaptable. You know, there are adaptations that our body can make that we take for granted and yet they're borderline miraculous. <laughs> Seriously, if you become a runner. There's no one who's rolled out of bed. I mean, if perhaps this has been done a couple of times in human history, but like how many millions of people have run a marathon, right? And you train to that marathon, you build up to that moment and you don't think that you're capable of doing it. But when you put yourself through the proper training program over the course of time, you build up the capacity to do this. And what's fascinating is like, you know, our heart, we think our heart is our heart. It never changes during our life. That's not true. You start running and you prepare for a marathon and what ends up happening, if you were to zoom in on your heart and pay attention to it, you would discover that actually the chambers grow larger and they become more efficient at squeezing. And so you have this like basically enhanced ability to circulate more blood with less effort, which is why runners have low heart rates because 40 beats a minute circulates the same amount of blood as 70 beats a minute for them because their heart has changed. Our gut microbiome is the most adaptable part of our entire body. If you change your diet today, your gut microbiome will be starting to evolve and change by tomorrow. But we have to acknowledge and accept that much like exercise, the gut is adapted to whatever it is that you have been doing. If you've been on the couch and you try to go and run 10 miles, you may hurt yourself and you will almost certainly be in pain afterwards. <laughs> right? So... It's, there's a process that we go through much like training in the gym where we have to match what we're trying to do with our diet to what our gut microbes are actually capable of doing. And when we diminish what we do with our diet, when we reduce variety within our diet, we should expect that there's a loss of functionality within the gut because you have stopped training your microbes to consume those other foods. You are narrowing the spectrum on your diet. And what we have seen, Jason, when we look at these studies, you know, I, first of all, I welcome, I welcome more research into these topics where we don't have as much research as I would have liked to see, but we do have studies looking at people on restrictive dietary patterns, like a low FODMAP diet, or when they stay gluten-free and they don't consume whole grains, 
or some people who are like rigidly adherent to a paleo diet. And what you see are changes to the gut microbiome that I would describe as being like, that's a negative change. That's not what I want my gut microbiome to be doing. And that's because when we reduce the variety in our diet, we are reducing the functional ability of these gut microbes. Whereas when we have an abundant diet, we are enhancing the functionality of these gut microbes because they are basically practicing and developing their skill at handling all these different varieties of foods. Even great raspberry croissants. Even great raspberry croissants. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned a couple of times, the studies, the science, the microbiome. You know, we've been talking about the microbiome for years. Yeah. And every, everyone who's smart has been on the show, including yourself. You know, so much exciting science, but everyone says it's, pr it's primitive. It's so exciting. There's so much happening. This is the future, but it's still early. It's primitive. And so I'm curious in terms of the science and research that you're paying attention to, to the, with regards to the microbiome, what's the most interesting right now for you? Oh man. Well, I think that we're moving beyond primitive. Primitive to me is when you're literally just describing what you're seeing, but you don't really know how to use it. When you start to turn the corner, the microbiome is becoming a tool that can be applied to enhance human health. So I will use two examples of what I, what I'm seeing out there. That's like, even for me as a scientist, this is blowing my mind. So the first is that MD Anderson is studying the effect of the gut microbiome in melanoma research. Melanoma is the number one most deadly form of skin cancer. When they treat melanoma, the um, medicine that they're using is called immunotherapy. And it basically like enhances the ability of the immune system to clear the cancer. Well, you actually need an intact immune system for this to work. And if it's not working, then it's unlikely to give you good results. And what they discovered, it really started with years ago. They noticed that if you give antibiotics to a person, prior to immunotherapy, they had worse health outcomes in terms of their melanoma. Antibiotics destroy microbes. So then they came forward and they said, well, what happens if we do a fecal transplant? And when they gave a fecal transplant, people had much better responses to the immunotherapy. So resetting and enhancing the gut microbiome, even in the short term with a fecal transplant, they had a better response. And then just this past December, published in the journal Science, one of the top journals on the planet. By the way, the doctor at MD Anderson, her name is Jennifer Wargo. She's doing great research, it's really cool. So basically what she discovered is that if you look at fiber intake, so they set a threshold of 20 grams. Now bearing in mind, 20 grams is actually still less than the minimum recommended amount of fiber for everyone, like men and women. So, but if you set it, if you set the threshold at 20 grams, the majority of people were not consuming 20 grams of fiber. That's what we expect to see. If you were, they discovered that you were substantially more likely to, um, have a good response to the immunotherapy, to live longer and to survive your cancer to the point that every five grams of dietary fiber intake that these people had increased their likelihood of survival by 30%. Wow. So the reason that this is like, this is a compelling argument of antibiotics, reduce microbiome, more risk with cancer. 
lift up the microbiome with fecal transplant, do better. Eat dietary fiber, support it, and nurture a healthy gut microbiome, significantly enhance your survival. Now, they're moving into randomized trials. That was not a randomized controlled trial, so they're moving in. We need more research on this. That's part of, like, to me, this is where the, the game is starting to change, is in things like this, like cancer therapeutics, where we can tap into the power of the microbiome and the connection between the microbiome and our immune system that I'm sure your listeners have heard where 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. That's why this is so relevant here. The other thing that's very exciting is I'm involved with a company. I'm actually the U.S. medical director for a company called Zoe. And we are a personalized nutrition company where basically what people do is they provide a stool specimen for their microbiome. They wear a continuous glucose monitor. They do a blood sample for their lipids and they type into an app what they're eating. And, you know, if you had only 10 people do this, it would be completely worthless. But what if you have 10,000 people do this? Now we can put this into a database and we can run complex machine learning algorithms that stop saying, Jason, in a randomized controlled trial, here's what the average person was eating and did better with. And instead say, yo, Jason, based upon your unique microbiome, your blood, blood sugar response, your blood lipid response, we were able to identify a pattern and here are the foods that actually work for your unique biology. Interesting. Because one of the questions I was going to ask, you know, you could, you could do blood work, you can go to Quest, you can work with your doctor, you can get a glucose monitor, but with regards to stool testing, as you mentioned, the microbiome changes so frequently. So a lot depends on like, what did you eat the last day or two? And if one's asking the question of how do I know if my microbiome is, is healthy, you know, I feel good. I've got great poop. You know, I look at the Bristol stool chart. It's looking pretty good most days, you know, although some, you know, if, if I feel good having regular bowel movements, healthy stools, how do I really know if my microbiome is where I want it to be? Well, first of all, this is not a yes or no thing. These are shades of gray. And we all exist somewhere as a shade of gray. There is no such thing as a perfect microbiome. And there's no one who has a completely rock bottom microbiome. And the, you know, the other thing too, that, that I would argue is quite frankly, no matter who you are, you should care. You should care because about this topic, because the emerging science is showing us that the microbiome is essential, not the only thing that matters, but it is essential for proper digestion, our immune system, our metabolism, our hormones, our mood, our brain health, our energy levels, and the expression of our own genetic code. And so this is a precious resource. And I think it's a mistake if we neglect it and say, oh, I'm healthy, so I don't need to care about that. I think we all should care. I think that we should be focused on this starting today and we should have uh, a structure or a process that we follow to elevate and lift up our microbiome, no matter what our starting point is. But like as a medical doctor, as a gastroenterologist, how do I make an assessment on whether or not a person has a damaged gut microbiome? Well, first yes. of all, you know, as a gastroenterologist, I would argue probably a hundred percent or nearly a hundred percent of people who come to see me outside of like, Hey, I'm here for my colonoscopy, you know, screening almost a hundred percent of people, they have a damaged gut. And one of the key things that I would look at is the, we have to recognize that your gut is most tangibly representative in the digestion of your food. Like it is clearly present there when it is unhappy, 
you are going to struggle to process and digest your food. But recognizing that the gut is also adaptable. So you, that is not etched in stone. That is very much something that can be shaped like a piece of clay. And so if you are in a place where you're struggling to process and digest your food, I'm telling you right now that your gut's not in a happy place. But when you make the changes necessary, which by the way, this is what my new book is about, the Fiberfield cookbook. It's much more than a cookbook. We'll talk about that later. But when you make the changes necessary and you discover that these foods that you have struggled to process in the past, you're actually capable of consuming and you consume them without symptoms and without restriction, you have proven that you have healed your gut because you have restored function to it. Now, the other thing that I look at real quick is because it's more than just like, hey, do you have food intolerances? It's, it's a little bit more than that. But I will look at the different medical conditions that are associated with a damaged gut. And so you could think about these different sort of pillars of how a gut is connected within your body's physiology, digestion. So like irritable bowel syndrome, celiac disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, acid reflux. Okay. All these conditions, damaged gut immune system. Okay. Like autoimmune diseases, allergic diseases, like seasonal allergies, asthma, things like this. These are things that are connected to the gut microbiome. Metabolic issues. So obesity, type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, coronary artery disease, again, all connected back to the gut. And you just go down the line, hormones, endometriosis, endometrial hyperplasia, polycystic ovary syndrome. You know, and you can apply this to all of these different pillars of gut health. And then what you discover is that there's a pattern that starts to emerge. You're not going to have all of them, but you may have specific ones popping out in specific places and you go, okay, we're connecting the dots here. This is making sense now. So it sounds like if one feels good and does have regular bowel movements and healthy stools, like, is it safe to assume? Cause I, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that there's a lack of testing, you know, in the same way, like if I'm at risk for cardiovascular disease, I can do the you know, there's like tons of different lab work I can do. I get a CT scan, I can do the echocardiogram. I can do all those things, be like, all right, you know, you're good on heart disease. You may feel fine because some diseases you feel okay, right? but you know, feel great. Then boom, you know, drop something, something catastrophic happens. Sure. With the microbiome though, is that the, are there, in your opinion, are there tests that can really pinpoint or is it more of like, you gotta, gotta rely on you know, are you relatively healthy? Are you having uh, healthy bowel movements? Are you eating a fiber rich diet and you're probably going to be okay? You don't, you shouldn't worry about it. Where we stand today is that we do have testing that is available, but it is not necessarily what I would describe as validated in the sense that like to me, validation means that you perform a study. And you demonstrate that using the information available in your test, you are able to actually enhance in an objective way, a person's health. And so the, the available testing today is like, I find it very interesting. It will describe the microbiome, but how are we supposed to use this when we have no study to say that we can improve a person's health using this information? Going back to Zoe for a moment. So Zoe, like we have shown that we can use a person's microbiome to predict their blood sugar, their blood lipids. We, we have published that. That's been in Nature Medicine actually a couple times now. Nature Medicine's the top um, scientific journal on the planet. But what we haven't yet done and are in the process of doing is a clinical trial. 
to demonstrate that when you compare our method using microbiome to say healthy dietary recommendations, like a, like a person like me saying, Hey, eat, this is good for you. Can we do better? And we're out to prove and demonstrate that we can do that. I think the gold standard is the, the 30 sources of fiber, right? For most people, I think that's going to be a bit of a journey. You, like, as you said, you can't just get up and run 10 miles tomorrow. With that said, I, I want to leave people with, you know, I, I love grocery lists, love a good grocery list. And so if there are five things that everyone should go out and get just to get started, if, you, if you're, because we have to assume, as you said, like 99% of the population, basically no one is where they need to be in terms of fiber. So let's just assume everyone needs to, I think our listeners are there though. I'm going to give our, our listeners some credit because I know we've got a very health forward, smart bunch. With that, all that said, I want five items that, you know, when you're accosted in the supermarket for buying ice cream, buy a fan and that <laughs> fan says, Okay, what should I buy? What are the five things I should buy to get started? What are, what are those five items? All right, so I'm gonna start off with both legumes and whole grains. I'm packaging them together because actually their effect on the gut microbiome ends up being quite similar. Here's what you get with these two things, legumes and whole grains. They are very packed with fiber, resistant starches, and polyphenols. And these three things, these are the three main prebiotics described food for the microbiome. So fiber, resistant starches, and the polyphenols, these are the three main classes of prebiotics that we're aware of. Now you have to understand, like prebiotic is good for your gut microbiome. It also means that you are leaning on your gut microbiome to help you to process and unpack these foods. This is why many people struggle with them. Because they're so high in prebiotics that people are struggling if their gut is not in a great place. So nonetheless, I start there. I'm going to do those two. And then like everyone needs to include leafy greens in their diet. There's a bazillion varieties of them. They have almost no calories and they are so jam-packed with nutrition. And it's just, to me, it's like, how can we talk about nutrition and not include leafy greens in some capacity? Choose the ones that you like, switch it up, try different ones. You know, there's so many last two. Okay. Here's where I think it gets a little more fun. So first I'm going with sprouts. If you're not sprouting, you should be. You're going to make Doug Evans happy. <laughs> well, Doug Evans has, Doug Evans has a lot of valid points. So, and look at the energy that comes from eating sprouts all day. Right. So look, you could live in Brooklyn Heights and, or you could live in Manhattan and have a 400 square foot apartment. And guess what? You could have a garden growing inside your apartment and all you need is one square foot on your kitchen counter. That's it. And it requires no soil. It takes about five minutes a day total. And it is literally the freshest food on the planet because there is zero time lapse between when you harvest and when you consume. It's highly nutritious. When we sprout, it's almost a miracle from nature where the legume or the seed, it increases the fiber, it increases the protein, it increases the vitamins, and they also will take on these medicinal properties. So for example, broccoli sprouts are one of my favorites, and they're extremely high in this phytochemical sulforaphane that is a cancer destroyer. So 
So to me, it's like, if you're not sprouting, you should be, you could have a garden in your kitchen counter. And one of the other beautiful things about sprouts is that people love to talk about food deserts. People, you know, one of the things that they'll say about a plant-based diet is they'll say, well, this is not very accessible. Sprouts are completely accessible. You can buy organic seeds and legumes, very inexpensive in bulk. They will store for an entire year and you just grab literally anywhere from two tablespoons up to a half of a cup whenever you need it. A half of a cup of lentils, Jason, when you sprout it, it takes three days and it goes from a half of a cup of lentils into four cups of sprouted lentils. And you are like reducing the anti-nutrients and cranking up the fiber protein and other vitamins. So I, I, right. I love sulforaphane and I love lentils. We do a lentil pasta every Monday in our house. Love it. In my new book, I talk about histamine intolerance. You can actually replace the enzyme that you need for histamine intolerance. It's called DAO, diamine oxidase. You can actually replace the enzyme by sprouting peas. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> it's like medicinal. So, all right. Number five, you know, I am, I think, perhaps most well known for pounding the drum of diversity within our diet. I've been doing it since 2017 which is the first time that the American Gut Project shared their data publicly. I was actually there when they shared it. I was sitting in the front row. And ever since that moment, I've been pounding this drum. But now I'm adding, I'm like tapping the symbol of fermented foods. All right, so I'm pounding the drum and I'm tapping the symbol at the same time. Fermented foods, we're not consuming fermented foods. It's not part of the American diet. And a study out of Stanford of less than a year ago, they took a group of people and they put them on a high fermented food diet for 10 weeks. And at the end of those 10 weeks, they had enhanced diversity within their gut microbiome and reduced measures of inflammation. To me, this was basically like the moment where fermented foods went from theory to validated by science published in the journal cell one of the top journals on the planet and so it it basically says we have this opportunity where we if we quite simply start adding fermented food to our diet we can really be adding a new dimension to our health beyond just adding varieties of plants add the fermented food and let's focus on that too because this is another way we can amp our digestive health so get the sauerkraut hold the hot dog in the bun yeah, get the sauerkraut, but like think of all the varieties out there, you know, not just the sauerkraut, but there's the kimchi. I have recipes for sourdough bread that you can make at home. I mean, there's, you can't create a healthier, a healthier bread than when you actually purchase the flour yourself and make sourdough. Not to mention, you know, there's like healthy forms of sodas. So like kick the soda to the curb and instead have something that's a fermented beverage, you know, and then there's like yogurt and there's kefir. I mean, to me, the healthiest form of dairy that exists is kefir. Agreed. Dr. B. Always a pleasure. Congrats again. Another bestseller. Great book. Fiber Field Cookbook. Pick it up. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jason. Always good to see you, man. 